Well, thanks for tuning in. My name is Parker Johnson, and this is the Midweek Devotional. Today is Tuesday, January the 19th. Well, tomorrow, the 20th, is a big day in our country, and I hope that you'll join me in prayer uh, before we begin our Midweek Devotional uh, as we pray for a day of peace tomorrow uh, with the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. Let's pray. So, Father, it is our desire and our hope and our prayer that tomorrow would be one of peace, that there would be a peaceful transition of power in our country. We pray, Father, for President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, Lord, that you would bless them. Uh, Father, calls them to walk with you deeply, to love you deeply, to follow your word deeply. Um, Lord, may they be used by you to bring uh, unity and peace in our land. Father, we pray that you would work in the hearts of all of our elected officials. Uh, Father, those who are going out, those who are coming in, uh, and Father, those who are continuing, uh, that our land would be one that glorifies you. Uh, Lord, as we mark the uh, week of the sanctity of life, uh, Sunday, as we think about the historic ruling of Roe v. Wade, we do pray, Father, for the end of abortion in our land. Uh, Lord, we pray that the voice of those who are not heard, whether they are in the womb or uh, at the end of their lives, wherever they may be in whatever situation, Lord, that we would be a neighbor. Uh, Lord, that we would love them as you have taught us to love them. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today I'm, I want us to look at Luke chapter 10 uh, with the parable of the Good Samaritan. The reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is we have the Ministerial Association here on Thursday here at our church. We're hosting this time, and I'll be sharing uh, from this passage. It is one that has been on my mind a lot. I will say the first time I taught on this uh, back in 2000. Uh, I don't know, 12? Let's see, when did I get here? 2013, so I guess it'd be 2014. Uh, the night I taught on the parable of the Good Samaritan, I was heading home, and there was on the right side of the road somebody broken down. And what do you think I did? I just kept on going. <laughs> well, at least for two blocks. Two blocks later, the Holy Spirit you know, increasingly was becoming uh, convicting upon my heart. And I turned around and I went back and helped this person uh, push their car out of the middle of the road. Their, their battery was uh, dead or I can't remember what it was, but they had someone on the way that just needed that part. And you know what? It ended up being somebody connected to our church, a family member of someone at the church. Uh, you know, it, isn't that amazing? You know, so I, I hope that I will learn this lesson well and better than I did that night and that I will obey more quickly. We're not going to read all of it up first. First, one, I want to read uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28, which sets up the parable, and then we'll read the parable and talk about it. Hear now the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So here's the situation. Jesus is teaching and a lawyer, someone who was an expert in God's law, stood up to put Jesus to the test. He, he was not there for, uh, to be on Jesus' side. He was there to see if he could trap Jesus to catch him in something wrong. So his motivation was all wrong. This wasn't an honest question in the sense of him really wanting to know. But it really is interesting as we look at his question, it's very telling. Listen to this, teacher, so he calls him a teacher, a rabbi, a term of respect. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he mixes metaphors here. All of a sudden, we see that there is a problem here. Because he is asking what he can do, that is his action, his effort, in order to inherit eternal life. Now, you don't do anything to inherit. I mean, I guess you could kill somebody so you could inherit their stuff. But I would imagine the, uh, the government might have something else to say about that situation. You don't, and you don't do anything to receive a, free, receive a free gift. In fact, if we do do something to receive a free gift, then it is no longer a gift. It is something that we have earned, even if it is heavily discounted. So he is asking a, a mixed question here. What do I do in order to get something that really is only a gift, something you cannot do anything for? Jesus turns the situation on its head, and, and he puts him um, in the, the uh, spotlight and asks him, hey, hey, what do you think? What's written in the law? You know, it's, uh, it, it really is interesting. Um, the lawyer is going to put together the first and second greatest commandments. First, to love your God, and the second, to love your neighbor which is the right answer. These two things, when we think about what the law summarizes, rather, these two things summarize the entire law. The first six commandments, excuse me, the first four commandments, rather, deal with our duty to God, and the second six commandments have to do with our duty to man. And so he has summarized the two tables or the two parts of the Ten Commandments of the moral law. Uh, Jesus says, look, good job. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus, you know, he, he says, hey, you're right. You are absolutely right. If you do that, if you do that, you're going to live. That is, if you perfectly obey the law of God with never failing, you can earn eternal life. And that was only possible with Adam and Eve before the fall. Now we are born with sin as sinners and we give great evidence of that fact that we are sinners every day of our lives and everything we think and say and do. Now, have you ever been in one of those situations where you wish that you could take your own words back or, or perhaps reach out and close the mouth of someone else saying, okay, that's enough, like stop, stop, stop now, stop now. Oh, yeah, that, he really just went there. Well, the lawyer is not content. Uh, content with where things stand. And he wants to keep pushing in. He really, you know, he just really shouldn't have. Verse 29 says, But he, this is a lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Okay, what's going on here? Well, let's pick out a couple things. One, he uses a really important word. He says, desiring to justify himself. What is he trying to do? Well, you know, he's trying to make everybody think he's a good person. He's trying to get Jesus. He's trying to put himself in moral authority over Jesus. Oh, it's not generally something that you 
want to do, do you? Um, but this word justify uh, elsewhere uh, is used in a legal sense in the terms of being declared righteous and forgiven of our sin. It's what happens to us at salvation. And it's not done by doing things. It is done to us by God, a gift that we receive by faith in what Christ has done. And in faith alone, you cannot justify yourself. You can't make yourself just before God. So what does he do? In order to justify himself, he's going to ask a question that is meant to narrow the definition of who his neighbor is in order to make this commandment possible to be obeyed. Now, we do this all the time. The Pharisees did this all the time. Uh, This is what happens when we come to a rule that we cannot keep. We seek to define the rule as narrowly as possible so that there might be some small chance of, not, of us keeping it. Think about this. Uh, thou shalt not murder. Right? I have not murdered anybody with a gun, a knife, with my hands, with my car. I can tell you that honestly. Right? Okay, so if we just narrowly define that commandment, the sixth commandment, um, thou shalt not murder, as long as you have not pulled the trigger on somebody, you're okay on that one. But that's not all there is to that commandment, is there? Jesus tells us real clearly in the Sermon on the Mount that if we have ever been sinfully angry at someone in our heart or called someone a fool, then we have already murdered them. That it has to do with intent and motivation and what's in our heart. And so we know that we are all murderers in that sense. And needing of the blood of Christ to justify us, right? Well, he is trying to narrow things down so that he can define his neighbor as to the smallest group of people so that he can obey it. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus is going to answer this situation with this parable. Starting at Luke 10, verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these, excuse me, which of the, these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right, so what's going on here? Well, there are, there are three different men traveling down um, to Jericho. Well, we really might say four. The, the first one is this Jew uh, who has left Jerusalem, apparently, heading to Jericho, and he has been beaten, left for dead, and stripped. Now, this road between Jerusalem and Jericho was 17 miles long, but it was a hard road, a hard road for a couple reasons. One is it had a significant amount of um, declination. Is that the right word? Uh, decrease in elevation. I think that would be a better way to put it. 2,700 feet separates from top to bottom, uh, Jerusalem down to Jericho. 
somewhere I read, and I, don't, I can't remember if this is correct or not, that Jericho is one of the lowest cities in the world uh, in terms of its standing in terms of the sea level. Uh, but I, I, don't, I might need to Google that one. Uh, it is known as the Bloody Way because it was rocky and barren, and there were lots of good hiding places for bandits. That said, it was a regularly traveled road. Why is that? Well, it was the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and Jericho was a priestly city. A lot of priests and a lot of Levites lived in Jericho, and they would have to go to and fro along this road in order to go to Jerusalem, in order to fulfill their duties as priests and Levites. Remember, Levites are those who helped serve in the temple, not as priests, not doing the sacrifices, but helped with a lot of the logistical things. Well, this one Jew is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets beaten up real bad, left for dead, robbed, clothes torn off. Two people are going to come by and not help him. The third, though, will help him. One important thing to ask when any time we come to um, a text in God's Word is to ask, who are the characters, the who, what, when, why, where questions? Who are these people? Well, let me rephrase this. Complete this sentence in your mind, if you will. A priest, a minister, and a rabbi walk into a, what did you say? Did you say bar? Well, of course you did, right? Because that, that's because we as a culture know that that's a, a way of setting up a joke. Well, in those days, there was a common structure for teaching, and everyone would have known what was coming next. In those days, for teaching purposes, they used this uh, group of three. It was a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. An Israelite, a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. And so if they if you would have said them priest, Levite, and blank, they would have said without batting an eye, Israelite. So who are these people? The first is a priest. And what do we learn about this priest? Well, he is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Why would he have been doing that? Jerusalem was the place where the temple was. Jericho was a priestly city in which many priests lived. It is likely that he had just finished his week or two of service at the temple. At this point, there were so many priests that you didn't serve the whole time there. You served a period either a week or two, and I have to admit I've, I've read two, uh, both of those terms, and so I don't know which one is correct. And so you would serve your week or two each year, and then you would head back to your hometown. Now, you might have some continued priestly duties in terms of your community, that sort of thing, but in terms of ministering before the Lord, that was a once-a-year thing. And so he is coming along, and, and what, is, what happens to him? Well, he, the, the verbs are very clear here. He saw and he passed by. Right? He saw and he passed by. Now, of all the people that would help this man, if we put our context in Jesus' day, we would think the priest is the one who's going to help. He, he is, by most accounts, at least from a society and cultural perspective, he is the holiest of them, the most religious person, and yet he continues to go by. What, what reason? What reason could he possibly have for continuing to go by? I mean, we can think of all the sinful reasons that we have when we don't help. But he might have hidden behind God's law. He might have hidden behind God's law. Well, we learn back in Le- uh, Leviticus chapter 21 that... A priest wasn't supposed to have contact with a corpse unless it was a relative. 
If he did do this, he would have been ritually or ceremonially unclean, which would meant he couldn't have served in the temple courts uh, and doing his priestly duties. Well, the thing is, we, we've just seen that he's done with that. The second thing is that uh, actually in Deuteronomy chapter 21, we read that priests were actually involved when someone was found dead between cities. He assumes this guy's dead, uh, we, we think, and so he would have had a role, according to God's law, in trying to figure out which city, and is always the city that's closest to it, which city should have been the one to take care of the corpse. But you know, the thing is that the purity laws in the Old Testament were never meant to keep someone from saving a life. Life is precious to God, and the Old Testament law upholds that everywhere. We're made in the image of God, and, and so was this person. I think there's a lesson here in the sense that we should be careful not to be so rigid that we try to hide behind our religiosity or outward religion. And in doing so, keeping us from actually loving others. This man was motivated by fear. This man was motivated by selfishness. This man, there's no telling all the different things that were motivating this man. Perhaps he didn't want to get beat up. The robbers might have been watching out. The robbers might have hurt this guy or killed this guy. He's not dead yet, but the guy doesn't know that. in hopes that someone would come along and help, and so they would get pummeled and they could get some more stuff. I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons why this man could have kept going. Well, the second man comes along, and, and this is the Levite. Now, a Levite, who is a Levite? Well, you know there were 12 tribes in ancient Israel, and each of these 12 tribes um, were named after the original uh, 12 sons of Israel or Jacob. Now, one of his sons was named Levi, and the Levites were those chosen by God to help minister uh, to God's people. They were specifically meant to help the priests. So all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. In order to be a priest, you had to be from the family of Aaron. So this is like someone not quite as holy and religious from an outward cultural perspective, as the priest, but certainly if the priest was having a bad day or had a good reason we didn't know about, then this guy surely would have helped. And what does he do? Well, the text is real clear. He saw and he passed. He saw and he passed. Now, at this point in the story, the hearers would have been expecting an Israelite as a third option. Remember, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi walk into a blank. Well, they would have already been cued in to, okay, Jesus is using a, a, a very common way of teaching. And we've heard about the priest, he failed. We've heard about a Levite, he failed. And so this really must be a, a really good story about how normal people are going to help each other. And so they're expecting an Israelite. What does he get? What does he say? He says, next, who comes along? But a Samaritan in verse 33. A Samaritan? Are you kidding me, Jesus? Who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans were known as half-breeds and heretics to uh, good old God-fearing Orthodox Jews. 
See, the Samaritans were those who lived in what used to be the northern kingdom of Israel, who had been taken over by the Assyrians, and they had intermarried into these pagan um, into these pagan families, and now they had a bit of a mutt in terms of religion. It, it would have had the trappings of biblical religion. They would have used the name of God. They would have used an edited and changed word of God. They had built their own temple. They had their own holy sites. And they also would have worshipped foreign gods along the way. It was a perverted version of biblical Old Testament Judaism. And as such, the people in the south of Judah and Jerusalem, they, they hated these guys. Now, instead of loving them and praying for them, they had sinful emotions towards them. They, they hated them. I was trying to think of a good illustration. The best I could come up with is, is imagine the guy on the side of the road is a, is a patriot, right? He is a, a veteran of two wars. He has the Medal of Honor, and he's wrapped in the American flag. And then the Samaritan would be like a, a Muslim terrorist walking down the road, right? And so these two would have normally hated each other. I mean, absolutely despised each other. And so when Jesus brings in a Samaritan, it would have shocked the crowds. I mean, can't you just imagine Jesus having to stop for a second in the rhythm of telling this story because there's so much uproar? What does he do? He sees. He doesn't pass by, not like the other two. What does he do? He had compassion. The counseling book I have defines compassion as a feeling for another sorrow that leads to help. It is more than a feeling. It leads to action. It's a feeling for another sorrow that leads to help. How did he help? Well, he bound him up with bandages. He used wine and oil to disinfect and treat his wounds. He put him on his own donkey or his own animal, I guess we read here. Uh, and that would have meant that he would have had to walk himself or abandon his cargo. He took him to an inn and paid for about two weeks of care, two denarii worth. And then he gave the innkeeper an open line of credit, uh, saying that he'd be back and he'd pay whatever was needed. You know, in, in helping this man, what, what do we learn? Well, he, he, doesn't, um, he doesn't act towards hate, with hatred towards this guy, right? We don't know what the guy on the side of the road, how he would have felt about the Samaritan. But the Samaritan had compassion on this man who needed help, even though he wasn't like him. It cost him financially a good bit of money. Two denarii, we read in the text, a denarius, singular, was the money that you would have earned for one day's wage uh, work, like working in the fields, working for someone. It caused him great inconvenience. You know, he cared for him immediately, and he helped care for him on an ongoing sense, right? It was messy. It wasn't just one and done. It wasn't over quickly. But he also cared for him responsibly. So Jesus' question here is, who, who is the good neighbor? Verse 36, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer, I mean, he couldn't say anything else. You know, he must have just been sputtering and choking on his words. The one who showed him mercy. It, it is interesting also that he does not say the word Samaritan. It is the one who showed him mercy. You know, when Jesus answers this man, the lawyer, with this parable after this question, who is my neighbor? 
he's going to cause us to think through this question in, in ways that perhaps are more uncomfortable than we'd like. Remember, the lawyer was trying to narrowly define the law of God so that he might do better uh, or might feel better about how well he keeps it. Jesus just kind of throws those categories up in the air. Uh, a buddy of mine, actually my father, uh, excuse me, my brother-in-law, Doug McNutt, we were talking about this passage last weekend, and, and he was saying, you know, it, from a Hebrew perspective, a, a neighbor is really the person in front of you, like the person with whom you have proximity. It's a pretty simple definition, but it's, it's so helpful. It, you know, it really redefines this question of it's not who is my neighbor, it's who, who is not my neighbor. Philip Ryken, commentator on this passage, says this. He says, my neighbor is anyone in need, anyone at all, whom in the providence of God I may be able to help. Right? A lot of times we divide people into us versus them, friends and enemies. But Christ even says in the Sermon on the Mount that we're to love our enemies. We are to go and do likewise. Now, I will say that um, I don't want my wife stopping on the side of the road in the middle of the night to help someone on the side of the road who has a uh, flat tire. You know, if someone has a ski mask on and a gun and is flagging you down for help, guess what? You just keep on going. There may be times when it is dangerous to help. That's not what I'm talking about. I think a lot of times we hide behind those excuses too much. When in reality, we just don't want to be inconvenienced. Or we don't particularly like the person. And we have to fight against our, our own attitudes. Um, but we are to help others. Are there people in your life that you need to help? Are there people in your life that you don't want to help, but you know you need to? See, ultimately this is fueled by the gospel. Ultimately, this is fueled by the gospel. Because we think about who we are in this text. Who are we? I mean, on the one hand, we, oh, I am often the Levite. I am often the priest in this, not wanting to help others. I'm supposed to be the Good Samaritan. But, you know, I think it's really Christ who is the Good Samaritan here. And we're the ones who are in dire need of help. And Christ has come from a far country, from heaven, into this world to help those who did not like him, who did not want him, who did not love him. And the Holy Spirit came and he changed our hearts and made Jesus lovely to us. So then we who have been helped, are we not to help others? We then who have been helped, are we not to love and help others? May the Lord calls us to be like the Good Samaritan. Go in peace.